Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. God, we're grateful for your word. We ask that you would open the eyes of our hearts and we would see you clearly. And God, help us, conform us to become more like your son, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. If you've ever been in an exclusive, intimate relationship, you quickly learn a thing or two about yourself and that person, don't you? If you've ever been married, uh, you learn quickly some things about yourself that are not very desirable and some things about the person you married. But it doesn't just take marriage. I mean, any type of relationship, you learn there are differences. Uh, One of those distinct experiences I had in learning uh, when I was married was the difference in how people enjoy or do not enjoy light in the morning. Have you ever prematurely turned on the light when someone doesn't want to see the light yet? When I wake up, I feel like the lamps, the lights, the sun, the moon, everything is already out. I mean, all light that could be already is, and I'm ready to go. My wife is the exact opposite. Um, You know, the type of situation like maybe she's a vampire type opposite, right? Stay up at night late for a few minutes because you don't want to get that bite because she does not like light. Light's light's a funny thing. It is a polarizing thing. If you catch me outside, my my eyes are a little bit lighter, but if you catch me outside, they, they say that if you have lighter eyes, you usually have more sensitive eyes. And, you know, you might find those people wearing sunglasses more often than normal. I found that on TikTok that was true, by the way. And for all you boomers, I found that on Facebook to be true. But if you catch me outside, I want to put sunglasses on. Because I squint because I cannot see. Uh, Recently, I was at uh, one of our restaurants. I'm in the restaurant business. And I was sitting down at one of our booths having a meeting. And there's a light right next to my face. And it's a, it's a nice, pretty light bulb, but it was just too bright. And so I went around the corner and I, I dialed it back to 50%. And a 100-watt bulb at 50% feels about right for me. And I instructed the team, hey, just for everyone's guest experience so that they're comfortable while they're, while they're seated, let's make sure we're keeping it at 50%. Uh, so that 100-watt bulb, it puts out... 1,600 lumens, 1,600 lumens, two zeros on the back side of that, which is the way by which we measure light and we express how bright it is. So 1,600 lumens. I'm throwing up here on the screen the difference between 1,600 lumens or a light bulb and then that big number with the 3573 and then like 24 zeros behind it. That's how bright the sun is. And so one lumen equals about one candle. And so that is 35.73 octillion lumens. And oh, my poor eyes when I get next to 1,600 of them. Can you imagine 35 octillion lumens in your eyes? Can we think for just a moment about the brightness of the sun? The sun is truly dreadful. I remember when I was a kid, I couldn't have been more than seven or eight years old. I was out of Girard Playground in Metairie playing baseball, just being a champ and got a heat stroke in the middle of it all. And I'm not blaming that on my parents for underhydrating me. I could have done it myself. But I remember not being able to see and all of a sudden it went blurry like, you know, the static on a TV. And I was walking around, I was like, I cannot see, I cannot see, someone please help me. And I had to sit down and they gave me water, probably some Kool-Aid made me feel better and eventually I got my vision back. But the sun, just for a little bit of time, all those lumens coming down on me. Have you ever gotten a magnifying glass and put it on an ant? I learned this in sixth grade for a science project that my mom made me do. I was homeschooled one year, worst year of my life. But if you get a magnifying glass 
and you get the sun and you find an ant, you experience the power of the sun, the power of light. It fries it. And if you get out for just a few hours in the sun and you find yourself underneath it, it leaves you skin change colors. And a few days later, it's still there reminding you as your skin crawls away from your body. It reminds you that you are no more powerful than the ant under the magnifying glass. The sun is dreadful. But it's also life-giving, isn't it? Without the sun, we would freeze. Earth would be uninhabitable if the sun were not present. We would freeze. Without the sun, nature could not grow. But with the sun, plants grow, giving us the ability to breathe air. With the sun, plants grow, giving animals the ability to eat of the earth and giving us the ability to eat of those animals or for all you vegans of the plants. Got to be conscious of the vegans, y'all. So the sun, for me, is a helpful analogy when thinking about the unimaginable. One, who projects and dials in and fades and scales the lumens of the sun. Can you imagine God sets the fader to the sun every morning and every evening as the sun rises and sets incessantly upon different parts of the globe? It's not just once it rises and And then it sets. That's our perspective. But from a global perspective, it is incessantly rising and setting. Never ending. And God looks directly into the octillions of light, of lumens, and fades it up and fades it down. Precisely. Can you imagine the blinding light that God, he himself, must be? God, in different ways than the sun, must be altogether dreadful and desirous. He is both fearful and life-giving. Isaiah 6, 1 through 7, gives us a clear depiction of the brightness of God when positioned next to man. The difference that we see is not with respect to brightness, though. It is with respect to... To holiness. The difference in holiness between humans and God is somewhat comprehensible to us when considering the difference between a light bulb and the sun. As we look at Isaiah 6, I want to look at the holiness of God when positioned next to man. We will then move to 1 Peter 1 to look at God's commands upon us in regards to personal holiness. And as we read, please keep in mind a working definition of holiness, and we have it in the notes, and Paul Tripp helped us with this definition, an author and speaker. We're going to define holiness as being cut off or separate from everything else. Doesn't the sun feel like that in the sky? Doesn't it feel like it owns its own world out there? It is set apart. It is unique. It is cut off. It is... Don't come any closer. And whatever is holy is in a class of its own. Remember that. Whatever is holy is in a class of its own. Holiness also means to be morally pure all of the time in every way. Aren't you excited about personal holiness now? To be in a class all on your own. To be set apart, to be morally pure in every way, all of the time. Isn't that you? (laughs) And it's none of us. But it is who God is, and it is who he says we are, and we are to be. So Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, I'm just going to read it, then we're going to look at a few quick observations In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. 
Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. And with two, he covered his feet. And with two, he he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The entire earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. This is like a modern day concert, isn't it? Base shaking the space, smoke all over the place. Before technology was, God was rocking the temple. And I said, and this is Isaiah's response. Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. A few things I want to point out. If you want to look at what holiness is, you can see, number one, that God is separate. And that is a good visible picture of holiness. He is is above. He is set apart and above in the vision that Isaiah had. The seraphim covered their eyes. Wouldn't it make sense that if you were in the presence of the one who sets the fader for the sun and looks directly into it, and not only that, but created it, if you were to set your eyes upon him and you had an extra pair of wings, do you think you'd cover him? I think you would. God is declared holy. And then the appropriate response is seen. When in the presence of one, the one who is holy, eyes have been covered and now the appropriate response from man comes. And it looks like this. He acknowledges, Isaiah does, his sinfulness immediately when positioned next to the holiness of God. A proper view of God's holiness necessarily mandates repentance from sin. A proper view of God's holiness necessarily mandates repentance from sin. And lastly, our observation, our fifth is Isaiah is declared innocent of guilt. On no account of his personal holiness, but rather by the holy mercy of God. Do you see the trajectory? God is seen as set apart and different and unique and special. And all those who would engage him should probably cover their eyes as they look upon him. What is this? Who is this? And then he is declared as holy. And then when man engages him, the immediate appropriate response is repentance of sin. And then, surprisingly, God's response is to cleanse Isaiah from his sin. Not because he became holy in a moment, but because it is who God is. That when we repent, that God's immediate response is to forgive, is to have holy, set apart, unique, wow, mercy upon us. And you have this in your notes. We get a glimpse of God's holiness in this passage, but it is apparent that God never intended to live in a temple as Isaiah saw him. In the heavens, invisible and seemingly distant. But instead, again, surprisingly, he came to us. He came to us in the form of us, in the likeness of men. He came to us humbly. He came to us to be touched, handled, felt, seen in his fullness without a veil. This is octillion by octillion by octillion to the octillion power coming here. 
so that we could see him and touch him. So that we could know what the brightness of God's light looks like, feels like, what is experienced, we could receive that. He comes to us so that we don't have to cover our eyes and wonder, but rather we would know this is holiness. This is who is set apart, and these are his characteristics, and these are his traits. And when he engages sinners, this is how he responds. And when he finds a blind man on the side of the road, this is how he responds. And when he finds a woman who's caught in adultery, this is how he responds. And you would think we should all just cover our eyes, but he comes to us. This is a beautiful picture of God's holy mercy. He is the Holy One of Israel, Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, who is now God with us. He's not even like the Son who stays far away. He, yet He is so much brighter, but He comes close. And we should be fried or frozen by the brightness of God, yet... We are drawn in and given life in the middle of his dread. We desire him. What a beautiful picture of God's holiness. What does God's holiness have to do with my holiness? The answer is everything. And we'll get there in 1 Peter. But to say that we are holy, just think with me, would necessarily mean that we are set apart. It would be to say that we are morally excellent and distinct. Not only do I not feel like this is a good definition for me, but in fact, y'all, it is a terrible definition for me. I am not distinct. I am not set apart. There is nothing special about me. I asked my 11-year-old daughter yesterday, you gonna watch me preach tomorrow? And she goes, nah. <laughs> She's not even here today. She decided to go to church with her cousin. What the heck? There's nothing about me that is distinct, that is unique, that is set apart. In so many ways, I feel tied into this world not cut off from it. I am so often not set apart, but instead tethered in with the tide of culture, society, and norms. I am certainly in no class of my own, and my moral purity is fully intact as long as I get my way. So the idea of like me, holy, it's like, just like her saying, nah, that's just how it feels. But there is good news. God's word teaches us that we have been declared holy because God himself came in the form of man and he has touched the coal to our lips. And a, another way of saying that would be God came in the form of men, Christ Jesus, and stood in my place for my sin unexpectedly paid the price that I rightly deserved for the unholiness that is in my life so that one day when I stood before God on judgment day, I would not be thrown aside, but rather Christ in me would be the champion and God would say, judge rightly that I have been made new and I am holy. Because Christ in me, I have received his holiness. It is just a judicial like when I put my faith in him, it is this way. His perfect life was given to me, transposed into me by faith. So I'm seen as, question mark, holy? So his word also teaches us that we are commanded to be holy in all of the conduct of our lives. To say that we are holy is to say that we are set apart by God, to God, for God's purposes. God intends that we be set apart from the vanishing, unnatural, and sinful desires in our 
hearts. Not out there, but right here. As 1 John 2.16 reminds us that we are not to love the lusts of our flesh, of our eyes, and the pride of my life. To say that we are holy is to say that the, the holiness gap, the bulb versus the sun, is no longer desirable. God and me, to say that I am holy is to say that I no longer desire the gap of holiness. I no longer want my own way and see that he is this way, but I am that way, and so let's just be. But to be holy is to say that I desire to get closer to him, to become like him. It is to say that we no longer prefer building our lives without consideration of his holiness, his set-apartness. It is to say that our lives completely and utterly belong to him. This is holiness. It is to say that everything we do, and the Bible says that whether you eat or drink, that everything would be to the glory of God. So certainly, all of the categories of my life, even down to eating and drinking, God wants holiness. Is anyone intimidated yet? It is a confession that pleads with God to be in the center of our lives with all the areas that are seen along with every hidden, secretive, and broken place that no one sees but God. So let's observe the areas in our lives that need holiness and let's be intimidated. We will find hope in 1 Peter 1. And that's where we're going to hang out for the rest of our time. But I just want to say some categories of life. And just listen. And maybe the holy spirit will tweak one of these areas. And as we move toward 1 first, first Peter 1, we will see how God is equipping us in these particular areas to be holy. Your speech, your marriage, your former spouse or spouses, dating, your contentment and acceptance to be single and not married. Parenting, work, television, movies, food, beverage, drugs, alcohol, pills, pornography, inappropriate books and journals and magazines, unhealthy emotional attachments, work addiction, interactions with people at places of business who do not know you, neighborhood relationships, how we spend our money, the secret hopes and desires of our hearts, what we set our eyes upon, more and better, house, pool, fashion, friends, never enough, social media habits, the time we spend in the inappropriate scrolling that we do. Gratitude for all that God has provided for us. Fear, anger, complaining. Just to name about 20 of the octillion of them. Is there any hope <laughs> for holiness? Is there any hope? To have the lumens of holiness that God mandates upon us? And why? Why does he ask this of us? Why would he expect this of us? And do we turn it on by flipping a switch? And can we turn it off by just flipping it back down? I'm overwhelmed to think that each of these categories should be considered when pursuing holiness. But as always, God's word gives us hope. 
So 1 Peter 1, verse 13, just before that, I want to create a little context. Peter calls these people, it's a, it's a group of both Jewish and Greek people, some who were raised in the church and some who were not, uh, some who were raised in the, in the Jewish religion and some who were not. Um, Peter calls them in the very beginning, elect exiles. Now remember, when we're moving from this to this, there's something about the nature of ourselves that sits in a place that doesn't quite feel at home. Do you know what it's like when Paul says in the scripture, man, those things that I want to do, I don't do. But the things that I do, I don't want to do. It's like he's an exile in his own body. So Peter calls them elect exiles. These words imply that the readers were chosen and set apart. Elect. They were chosen and set apart. They were to be holy, would be another way to say it. You holy exiles. And they were to be in a place that was not their home. We find ourselves here, don't we? And sometimes it's easy to say like, man, it's not my fault. I mean, what do you want me to do? Like we have a restaurant in Las Vegas, right? So I go to Las Vegas every three months. I mean, come on. There's all kinds of temptation in Las Vegas. What do you expect? Wouldn't that just be a normal response? But it's, it's not acceptable as an elect exile, no matter where we go and what we do in the middle of your non-homeland, God has something to say. The Jewish people would identify with this phrase. They were a people whom God set apart long ago. And they seem to always, always, always be on a journey to find home. And I mean, if you just go take a gander at the Old Testament, you will see this over and over again. These people were called by God, and really it goes all the way back to the garden. Remember, Adam and Eve were in the garden. And remember, as a result of their sin, they became exiles of their home. So I mean, really, y'all, from the beginning... It's been about exiles. It's been about us finding ourselves in spaces that are unfair. That we're not asking for it. We don't want the temptation. We we hate it. We hate what it does to our family. We hate what it does to our personal life. We hate the secret in our lives. We despise these things, but we're not asking for it. We just find ourselves here. That could be the way we see things. I don't know about you, but at times that's the way I see things. So they constantly find themselves moving, moving, moving. And then they finally get to the promised land. But then eventually they're taken captive and brought to another country, many of them. And then one superpower overcomes that superpower. And then another superpower can overcome that superpower. And they find themselves in the middle of this place of like, come on, man. (laughs) When am I going to finally get home? When can I finally, have you ever had this, had this sense? When is this life, almost like when is this life just going to end? So that I could finally be in the place of holiness. But God doesn't leave us in that fatalistic mentality and say, well, dude, just, just give up, no big deal. Because in the meantime, you know, God understands. And one day you'll be. But that's not how he treats his people from the beginning. Nor do we have an excuse ourselves to just hope for one day and sit in the darkness in areas in our lives in the meantime. So this is a difficult truth for us to bump up against because here, at least here in the New Orleans area, let's say, we feel pretty at home. I don't know about you, but I own my house. And if, and when I didn't own a house, I rented that house. And if I paid on time, like they weren't going to come kick me out. That was my house. And you see, there's a, there's a 2010 Chevy Traverse out there right now with a couple hundred thousand miles on it. None of you would want it, but if you wanted it, it's not yours. It's mine. (laughs) That's my car. I feel tightly. I feel tight about my possessions. It's my job. I'm right at home, y'all. Elect exiles. 
They hold things loosely. They don't feel right at home, do they? Holy people of God should never have their feet so deeply in the earth, so secure. Usually things don't go well when life becomes common to us. It is normal. It is ours. We own it. We are here. And this is not the story of God's people. Doesn't look like covering up of eyes. But this is our way. At least in South Louisiana, it's easy to feel like this. In our country, I think it's easy to feel like this. We would do well to remember that God's people have always lived under the rules. The rule of kings of this world. Yet God's people are always, always, always reminded that their final allegiance is to the creator God and his son, King Jesus. He has always called his people to be separate, to be holy, no matter what culture says. And there are so many cultural conversations about what is right and what is wrong. And we could hoist all of them up right now. And all of the things that our society is debating on whether or not this is right or this is wrong. We don't get to just fit in and say, well, what's my opinion and how do I feel about that? And I I, I respect your opinion and I'm also respectfully going to have mine. We don't get to do that. What we get to do is acknowledge God's word and ask him what is holy. And right and good and set apart. And even when we don't like it, we acknowledge it and we say we are under the rulership and the reign of a different king, and his name is Jesus. And his light is brighter than all of the other lights, and his truth is greater than anyone else's truth. And this is reflected in my personal beliefs and conduct as a Christian. This is holiness. So 1 Peter 1, verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action. Originally it says, gird up the loins of your mind. Which is to say, in Exodus chapter 12, if you would go back, what what God told the Israelites while they were about to roll out of Egypt. They had been slaves there for hundreds of years. And so one of the things that God says right when he's about to get them out and set them free, he says, hey, keep your sandals on, have your staff in hand, eat your food fast, and gird up your loins. To all you dudes, they would have worn some big old nasty robe and had a belt to gird up your loins would have been to tuck your big old robe into your belt and be ready to run. Gird up your loins. So right here, Peter tells us, he says, therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Holiness must be something we believe is necessary and we need to be ready to run. But when it's common and when it's every day, y'all, and it's just wake up, go to work, talk to family, talk to friends, go to sleep, wake up, go to work. Oh, and by the way, on Sunday, I go to church. And if that is what holiness looks like, I can assure you, The mind is not girded up, ready to run. With regard to holiness, your head needs to be on a swivel. Goes on. And being sober-minded. Any ever had a first date before? And for all the foolish ones of us in here, we had a drink before that first date. To take the edge off. Any of you had an interview? You really wanted to get that job? And to take the edge off, you did something to take the edge off and you became less than sober-minded? You know, we don't do that kind of stuff when it matters, do we? You ever been in a particular street in the city? Certainly not New Orleans, it's very safe. 
But ever, you ever been in a particular street in the city and you are sober about your surroundings? Does that look like your life when it comes to sin? Head on a swivel, y'all. Sober-minded. Robe tucked into your belt, ready to run. Staff in hand, shoes on your feet, and scarfing your food down like my second born. <laughs> Unhealthy and messy. Are you, is that you? This is what the word, the word of the Lord instructs us to be this way when it comes to holiness. Sober-minded. Now here's the good news. Set your hope fully. This is important. Where are you setting your hope for holiness? And for all of you perfectionists out there, this is a good one for you to hear. For all of you who let sin roll off your back, don't worry. Don't, don't check in right here. But for all of you who feel like you got to get it right every single time. And if you mess up, oh, three days later, you're still thinking about it. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know, your holiness will never finalize until the revelation of Jesus Christ, until he takes you home. Can we just accept the merciful truth of God? Our hope is upon him, not upon ourselves. Our perfection is not, did we get it right every single time? And if we didn't get it right every single time, we got to hold it over our heads every single time. That's not holiness. And that's not where our hope is set. Our hope is set that when this skin falls off of these bones and God decides to resurrect me from the dead or he comes sooner than my death, that's my holiness hope in its final conclusion. So much like Isaiah, there is grace and mercy, having our hope only upon him. And now I'm going to speak on behalf of all the junior high and high school students. Because we all, as parents, man, we love to have obedient children, don't we? But can I just encourage all the parents? The Bible says, as obedient children. You know, we project ourselves in our own family life in ways that our kids watch. And we want obedience from them, don't we? But a real good question is, do you position yourself as an obedient child to God? The kids are making me say all this, y'all. <laughs> as obedient children. He postures us. He positions us, God does. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. That's a very short statement. But to meditate on that, we would do well. As obedient children to Father God, do not conform to the previous passions of your former selves. In the list of 20 and the greater list that is in your own life, I want to ask you a question. Have you been positioned as an obedient child to God and stayed faithful to the new way of life? Or have you found yourselves in the former way? Gird up your loins, feet, have your shoes on, Cain, eat it fast. I'm going to take you out of Egypt. And have you found yourself dropping your cane, taking your shoes off, eating slowly and untucking your belt and staying in the place of slavery, of sin? And the Bible encourages us as obedient children, do not go back there. But as he who called you is holy, here's the command, you also be holy. Holy in all your conduct. <laughs> all? All. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. 
And as children, we are to be like our father. In verse 17, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, okay, now he's positioning himself in the relationship. If we are calling on him as father who judges, all you parents, you know what it's like to have to discern between two of your kids who are saying different things, or all of you employers who manage people, you know what it's like to have to discern between two employees who are saying different things, and then you have to come down rightly on the issue? I hate that. God is in the business of doing that perfectly. He is the judge who is impartial according to each one's deeds. Conduct yourselves with fear. That's a heavy one. When things are common, we are no longer fearful. When we own everything we touch, there's no fear in that. There's ownership in that. Strength in that. But when we are obedient children positioned to a father who is the judge, who impartially, precisely, correctly sees every bit of our conduct, and he mandates that we be holy as he is holy, and he sees everything about us, we no longer have this deep sense of ownership and strength, do we? You be holy as he is holy. With fear, he says, throughout the time of your exile. How long, God? Throughout. But not forever. Forever. But I want to quit. I want to give up. I finally just want to give in. No. But I feel like I'm not at home and I feel like it's unfair and I feel like I've been the victim here and I've been positioned in such a way and I'm an exile throughout all of your exile. Be holy. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. He's hearkening back to Egypt when he told them to get their shoes on. Remember who they were? Remember how they were in slavery and in chains? You remember? But not with perishable things. You weren't ransomed with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of the Holy One who undeservedly poured himself out for you. This is why we are holy. Because it's not light. It's not a trinket. It's not a doubloon that's thrown off of a float that got us into God's house. It was the Holy One who came in my place for my sin, ransomed me from slavery, sickness, sin, and death. Certainly, I don't feel like I can just be whoever I want now. He's pleading with us. Be holy, y'all. The blood of Jesus is not a light thing. You've been ransomed from those ways. Your former desires that you always forever and that you have continued to creep in your life or allow creeping, all of those things, you've been ransomed. Why do you sit there still acting like it was just a doubloon to pay the price for your sin? Going back to it as if it didn't cost anything. As if it's no big deal. But with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake, your sake. Who, through him, you are believers in God and who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. We're going to finish right here. Keith, you can come on up. So that your faith and hope are in God. 
Here's the best news of all. Your faith and your hope for holiness is found in one place. In God. That's it. In God. He poured out the blood so that we could have hope and faith in him throughout our exile. And so that when we hear words like, be holy, as I am holy, it's attached. It's attached to our faith and hope in Christ Jesus. And when you see so far away the holiness of God and you feel like you haven't and can not come close and you have one lumen and he's octillion upon octillion in that day, have faith and hope in God. And when you make a mistake again and your mouth goes off again and you go back to the place of, your, of where you used to be, where you used to be chained up, once again, throughout your entire exile, have faith and hope in God. He's good. Just remember, he did not stay in a temple. He did not stay lofty, high, and lift it up. He came among us, with us, around us. His Holy Spirit is now in us. He's not, he's not abroad. He's here. So we have hope, we have strength, we have confidence in His work, in His Spirit. In his name, in his son, in his ransom, throughout the time of our exile. Be holy as God is holy. Let's stand up and we'll pray. God, we're about to sing to you and worship you. And out of that, all, all we're doing, God, is we're expressing our gratitude for your goodness. The goodness that you have shown us throughout our exile. God, for those in here who are far from you, and they do indeed feel like they are distant from you, God, would you draw them close and change them from the inside out. God, those of us in here who have gone back to our former ways, God, would you gird them up? Would you tuck their robe into their belt? God, put their sandals on their feet and put a staff in their hand. Help them to be sober-minded. Knowing that final holiness will come at the revelation of Jesus when he returns or when we come to you through death. God, would you encourage each of us to know, to remember, as you are holy, we should be because of the price that was paid on behalf of our sin. Help us to know that our hope can be in you because of what your son has done for us. In Jesus' name. Lord, I come, I confess, bowing Without you, I fall apart. You're the one that guides my heart. Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. 